Welcome to The Real Python Podcast. This is episode 150. What are the core lessons you've learned along your Python development journey? What are key takeaways you would share with new users of the language? This week on the show, Duarte Oliveira y Carmo is here to discuss his recent talk, Four Years of Python. Duarte works at the crossroads of machine learning, data science, and software engineering. He began using Python in his graduate studies and never looked back. He wrote a blog post in 2021 about some of the valuable lessons he's learned and decided the lessons and the concepts in the post might make a good conference talk. We cover the steps in his process of crafting the presentation, practicing at a smaller conference, and finally presenting it at PyCon Italia last year. We also dig into the four major themes of the talk. And along the way, we share a collection of resources to help you continue learning on your Python journey. This episode is brought to you by Influx Data. The Influx DB time series platform empowers developers and organizations to build real time IoT, analytics, and cloud applications with timestamp data. Learn more at influxdata.com. All right, let's get started. The Real Python Podcast is a weekly conversation about using Python in the real world. My name is Christopher Bailey, your host. Each week, we feature interviews with experts in the community and discussions about the topics, articles, and courses found at realpython.com. After the podcast, join us and learn real-world Python skills with a community of experts at realpython.com. Hey, Duart, it's good to talk to you. Well, thanks for having me, Chris. Yeah, well, we have uh, a little history kind of going back. We had at RealPython a bit of an outreach program to try to find a co-host once David Amos had left and you had applied. And so we had done kind of a one-on-one interview, if you will, and, and talk. And I had asked you early on, like, well, you know, I'm not sure who we're going to pick and uh, would you like to come on the show And anyway? at some point and you had said yes and then I suck and I haven't contacted <laughs> you for a year. <laughs> and then I reached that, okay, remember me, let's do it. Yeah, totally. <laughs> yeah, so cool. I, I appreciate you reaching out and uh, you recently did talk and I think it's a nice kind of coincidence as far as fitting in with the kind of stuff I like to cover on the show and I think you realized that. And your talk was called Four Years of Python and then I did some research and I found that you had done a, a blog post first and maybe talk about doing the blog post. Yeah, exactly. So first of all, I was reading a book called Practices of the Python Pro. Yeah, uh, Dane Hillard. Yeah, he exactly. He was on the show. For me, great. It was, I, I love that book. It was, a, it was a really good book. Like one of my first when I still got like having fun with technical books. I was thinking about like that I actually have been programming at that point for about four years and that I was going to, I'm getting paid for it. And, and that I've started like learning some things, like some guidelines, or I've observed some things. And I decided to write a blog post about them. Like I, I, I like writing for my blog and that's something I like to do regularly. So I, I thought, okay, not, why not put together kind of these four main things? And I got super good feedback on, on the blog post. I think the author, he even retweeted it. So that was cool. Eventually, what happened is that I wanted to kind of make it into a talk. And so, yeah, basically what happened is that 
I pitched it to the local PyData uh, meetup here in Copenhagen. Yeah. They ex- accepted it. Okay. And then, uh, yeah, it ended up to, of being a talk at PyCon Italy last year. And yeah, it was super fun uh, to do it. So uh, uh, yeah, the blog post basically escalated really quickly <laughs> and turned into a massive thing. But it was super fun to do the talk. Let me ask you a couple questions kind of related to that. So first is, of course, why did you start writing a blog? What was your reasoning for creating a blog as a programmer? That's a good question. First of all, just having fun, you know, playing with static site generators. Everyone like on the web has a blog and and stuff like that. So (laughs) mainly curiosity, of course. But I also believe, and this is, I think Simon Wilson, one of the like general, he has a a big blog and he's always on the top of uh, all hacker news and stuff like that. I think he's still a general contributor, but he talks about that when you learn something, a way of internalizing what you've learned is to write about it. Yeah. It's a little bit like kind of closing the process whenever you learn something. And so I've kind of have been using my blog for that. Whenever I learn something cool, I try to write about it. But it's also my blog. So I get to write about whatever I want. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah I mean, you kind of, I think you do mix uh, topics quite a bit. Yeah, I like to to mix them a bit. I mean, sometimes you you see things about programming or machine learning, which is my area of focus. But you'll also find things about running, uh, about other stuff that I'm interested in. So, I mean, it's my space, right? Yeah, Apple Watch. Um. <laughs> exactly, like it's my space. So I, there's no rules, right? So it's yeah. it's an extravagance of things I like. That's cool. Yeah. What, what's the you said it's a static site. Uh, what are the tools you're using? Come on. You know, I'm using a Python base. I'm using Pelican. Uh, <laughs> okay, great. Awesome. Uh, and I met the maintainer. So at my first kind of PyCon, PyCon Italy, I actually met the maintainer, which is Justin Mayer. Oh, that's so cool. The maintainer of Pelican. I was like, hey, like, I mean, I use Pelican, your static site generator and stuff. But yeah, it, it's a great static ch- site generator. Uh, of course, I had to use Python on the back. That's what Pelican's based on. So yeah, basically that's it. And then it's uh, like some Cloudflare and stuff on top. And yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Nice. I had an experience early on uh, on the web. And and I guess it depends on the, the site that you try to do this on. But I felt that I was writing, or in my case, I, was, I, I really did it through YouTube. Mm-hmm. I was, I guess, kind of an early wannabe YouTuber around 2008, 2009. And I created a, a thing called Creativity to Spare. It's still out there. It's really ancient. And, you know, please don't go look for it. But the, <laughs> that's exactly what I'm doing. My problem with it was it was all over the map. I, I didn't have a focus to it. Like, I, we, we talked off outline just before I started that. I'm into lots of creative different things. Yeah. And so I'm like, oh, how can you do better sound for your videos? How can you light your videos? This is pre-LED tech, it was like right as LEDs were kind of becoming like way more popular. Mm-hmm. I know that sounds strange, but you know, there was a time <laughs> when they weren't everywhere. And, you know, ring lights were new, like all that stuff was like just kind of like really expensive and on the cusp. And so I I was excited to share a lot of this stuff. So I'm like, oh, let's talk about time lapse. Let's talk about audio. Let's talk about, you know, making a your uh, rock band drum kit controller control garage band, something like that, you know, all these kinds of weird things. And the problem is it never got traction. And I I always kept hearing from people, they're like, oh, you should just focus on one of those. And and so I've always thought about that for blogs. Like, 
I am interested in getting into blogging myself uh, pretty soon here. And so I'm, I'm intrigued by what you said that you kind of just write about what, whatever. Do you see lots of ups and downs on it? I mean, that's always going to be the case, but. Yeah, I think, I don't know who said this, but I think there's an actor out there. It might be, yeah, I don't know, one of the famous Hollywood actors that says, like, you do one for them and then you do one for you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> right? yeah. I, I try not to apply that too much. To be very honest, right. um, it's a little bit, of course, you look at the metrics and, of course, you want to have hits on your on your blog post, but that's that's not the reason that why I write it. Yeah, sure. I write it because it's, uh, I write it more for me than... Uh, if someone else can relate, great. That means it was a great article, right? Or if it gets retweeted or people talk about it, that's great. But I also don't do it so much like for <laughs> for for other people as I do it a lot for me as well. That's why, like, I have, for example, no comments on my website and stuff like that. It's because yeah, yeah. For me, it's the process of it's the process of putting it out there that is really rewarding to me. And in if then it can be rewarding to other people, that's great. But that's not the main point for me to write okay. something. Well, that's good. Do you know what I mean? So that's why I'm a little bit protective of, I'll write about whatever I feel interesting. But yeah. hopefully I've gotten an audience that has their interests kind of aligned with mine as well. And they might be surprised if they subscribe, basically. Yeah. Okay, yeah. cool. Awesome. Yeah. Going back to the talk. So yeah. you had written the blog post and then... Did you need to pitch it per se to PyData to get it there? Yeah. So basically what happened is that I, I, I wrote the blog post. Uh, I got some traction. I was excited about it. Then I've never, I had never been to a PyCon okay. uh, in my life. And I was, I wanted to go to my first PyCon. And so I apply, I, I filled in a call for proposals for PyCon Italy. And PyCon Italy has this, I don't know if it's special about PyCon Italy, but they basically have a voting system where everyone can vote on their favorite talks uh, for them. And then they select from the pool of the most voted talks. Okay. And I completely forgot about my call for proposals. <laughs> I completely forgot I had pitched this talk. And uh, something like three months later, I got an email saying, congratulations, your talk was accepted. And I was like, what oh. talk? <laughs> I was like, what talk? I'm not ready. Sure. Yeah. And uh, what happened after that is that, okay, then I'm going, if I got accepted, of course, I'm going to do the talk. And I used kind of a local PyData meetup to kind of rehearse the talk. Oh, uh, we have okay. a great like local PyData meetup here in Copenhagen, which is amazingly run by a super passionate guy that makes these awesome meetups. So I, I, I got a chance to kind of uh, make the presentation first here in Copenhagen and then uh, a couple of months later in, in Italy. And it was, yeah, a super good experience. Like uh, I would uh, repeat it, no problem. To give people an idea of yeah. what PyData is, can you give a little background on that and how you joined it? Yeah, so uh, how I see it, you mean PyData, like what the organization is? Yeah, or? kind of the organization and how they're different places. Yeah, you have like the PSF, right? The, the big Python software foundation. I see PyData as something that is a little bit more related to like NumFocus. Yeah. So, you know, all of these packages like NumPy, like Pandas, like a couple of others, they are basically sponsored, quote unquote, or, or maintained by this NumFocus organization. They have, a, they have a good relationship with something called PyData. So that's Python, much more related to the scientific and data space. So a lot of my talks and, and my interests, of course, they're in Python, but also in the PyData side where you get a little bit more of a mix of science and Python. So instead of like looking at a talk about web 
the stack and Django and Flask and all that cool stuff, you'll probably hear about NumPy, Scikit, PyTorch, things like Jupyter, all that stuff. Yeah. Exactly, all the Jupyter ecosystem. I, I guess you still have a Jupyter Conf. Yeah, I think that's <laughs> going to be running yeah. in Paris. But uh, one of the cool things that they do in Italy, I think they also do this in Berlin, is that they join the PyCon and the PyData. Oh, okay. And that's my favorite thing about Python conferences is. It's because, of course, you could go to a, a conference just about recommendation systems or machine learning. But if you go to a Python or conference, you have this opportunity to look at a wide range of topics, yeah. right? Everything from web development and Django all the way to like machine learning operations. In the mean, in the mean, there will be someone like running their personal finances system with Python. Yeah. So you'll get this <laughs> mix of ideas that for me are much, are, are super interesting. And that's why I, I love these conferences that you get like an extravagance of topics. Yeah. I'm going out of my way this spring to, to go to a few yeah. and, and I'm hoping to like last year, I got a whole you know, half a year, I guess, out of it. Again, like you were talking about, you know, yeah. people from all different walks, and and that's those are the interesting stories to me. It's not always the the big companies and and so forth. It's very often the beginners and intermediate people that I, I really dig to talk to, like to kind of figure out what they're doing. And um, so that's what I thought was really interesting to talk, you know, to talk to somebody who's preparing, you know, some of their first talks and 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 getting it ready. There, did the conference help you with prep? <laughs> Uh, they, I mean, there's a bunch of resources out there. There are, uh, I, I'm always amazed about how well these things are prepared. There's uh, an infinite amount of resources. I think one of the best one is, is PyCon US, right? Like the one, I think it's the biggest PyCon in the world Yeah, where they have pages just explaining to you how you can prepare for these talks. So okay. the whole process was super well documented. So I didn't need to kind of reach out, but they do offer some mentorship opportunities. Uh, so I, but I was able to take the, the documentation and the materials and I take it in front of myself. And like I told you, I had like a, a practice run at the local yeah. uh, meetup. So that was super helpful as well. Like I got some feedback and adjusted there and then I went to the conference and it went well, uh, thankfully. Yeah. I was going to ask you if if you had modified some things between the two and what the feedback was after the talk. Yeah, I was, I spoke way too quickly <laughs> on the first one. So I had to, you know, sh yeah. show in a couple of more interesting stories there. Uh, so that was one, but other than that, people really enjoyed the conference. So I didn't need to adjust that bit. Uh, but also like, there was a, con a component of increasing your confidence, right? You've done it once before. So second time will be easier. Yeah, definitely. Yes, yeah, so yeah. you would suggest uh, following a similar pattern for other people. If you can practice, of course, if you have the opportunity to present at the local meetup. For me, like participating in the local community of Python is, is super important. Not super important, but really beneficial. Let's put it yeah. like that. Because sure. I love being immersed in nerds. <laughs> uh, and so whenever I have the opportunity to be surrounded by people that have a lot of the same passions that I have, I always have the, a blast. And so I take every opportunity to kind of participate in local conferences, but also kind of abroad conferences. Nice. Yeah, it seems like Europe has a larger grouping of those kind of PyData things. They're a little more spread out here, but hopefully people can find one in, in the United States close to them. But it is a worldwide organization, which is great. Yeah, it is a worldwide organization. Of course, you need to be, I mean, it depends on the city in Europe. I'm very lucky that we have those here. But then like maybe we have a local meetup, but we don't have like a, a PyCon Copenhagen. But then yeah. there's a bunch of conferences throughout Europe. And of course, you know, Europe is a smaller kind of aggregate of these things, but there's so many cool conferences uh, here. So I, I, I can't wait to go through some of them this year. Yeah. 
So to kind of take us back a little bit and get a foundation for the ideas that you have in mm-hmm. your talk, um, at the time of the blog post, four years was from 2021. Is that right? Mm, might be, might be. Let me check. <laughs> uh, uh, I don't know. The talk, uh, the blog post was in 2021. Yeah. So I so had been programming for about four years, right? Okay. So 2017. So like maybe give exactly. us a little background. I don't usually do big background stories mm-hmm, on the show, yeah. but I think it kind of makes sense to cover here. Like, did you, were you doing programming in school or, and you know, how did you get into Python? Yeah. So I'm originally, my weird name comes from Portugal. I'm originally from Portugal. I live in Copenhagen now, but, but that's where I did my bachelor's. I did a very kind of general bachelor's in engineering. Okay. Uh, where I had like a class in C++, which I did not like at all. But I had, <laughs> sure. I have always been very interested in computers. I always liked computers a lot. And I got the opportunity to do my master's abroad. And I could choose between Switzerland and Denmark. And in Denmark, they had this thing where they let me select 75 or, or 50% of my course. I could select whatever classes I, I could do, which is not very common in Europe. Normally you have like an established master program. And one of the, and I said, okay, I'm going to take the Denmark master's degree because they can, they let me basically choose whatever I want. Yeah, flexibility is cool. <laughs> exactly. I mean, for me, that's, it, it's great because I also believe that, I mean, in your master's degree, you're a little bit more sure about what you like, right? And you're a little bit less scared of going for it. And so I took an introduction to programming, even though I had one before, I took an introduction to programming in Python in my first year of master's. And I just completely fell in love with it. Yeah, I remember I have these flagships of just being hours and hours on end, just solving the problems that they gave me. And so that's where I got into it. And of course, then I could choose all machine learning and artificial intelligence related courses in in this university. And so, yeah, that was something that sticked and and, and never stopped till to this day. That's awesome. Yeah. Would you say that the the techniques that you are talking about in in your talk specifically were things that you developed along the way or realizations kind of after the time oh for sure there were things that, that developed uh, along the way i think the first two years when at least i started programming because of, of course i didn't also have a, a background in full computer science right more uh, sure. kind of general engineering a lot of these concepts of testing and and code coverage or, you know, like like simple simplicity of things. Those are concepts that I think really start appearing once you start kind of really dealing with code in companies. And uh, when when I left university, I first started with a little bit more kind of business focused positions. And I I realized that, no, no, I really like this thing. And so I I continued to funnel more and more towards the engineering side. As those years went by, I really started learning some of these lessons. So I think you need also to have some, you know, some, uh, (laughs) some, uh, to get your hands a bit dirty to get some of these learnings, basically. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Developers love the InfluxDB time series platform because it handles large time series datasets and provides low latency SQL queries, which helps them build real-time applications and provides insights that they otherwise miss. InfluxDB Cloud is a performant, elastic, serverless time series platform that can ingest billions of data points, such as metrics, events, and traces, in real time with unbounded cardinality and store and analyze and act on that data all in a single database. 
Check it out and start for free at influxdata.com. That's I-N-F-L-U-X-D-A-T-A dot com. I think it kind of covers like kind of the background and getting you going and started with Python and kind of your background there. Mm-hmm. You had, I think in your blog post, there were four ideas in there. I think there's five in uh, the talk. And so maybe we could start from the top there. Yeah. Your first one was reading is better than Googling. What do you mean by that? Yeah. So, uh, yeah, you know, I, <laughs> four in the blog post, five in the, co- I'm not consistent. What can I say? But, no, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, you had another time, idea. <laughs> exactly. You know, something popped up last minute. No, okay. So, yeah. So I think in terms of Googling or using, or reading is better than Googling. I mean, it's, it's, everyone uses, uh, or, Stack Overflow or Google's for things all the time. Yeah, it's really common. I use Stack Overflow regularly, daily. And we have this impression that, okay, if you're a super expert programmer, you don't use Stack Overflow. I think this is kind of a flawed statement. <laughs> but yeah, what I realized as I was yeah, getting more and more into my, my work is that whenever you, if you take your time to read the documentation, so whenever you found uh, and like you start reading the docs about a certain function or a certain module, I think information tends to stick a bit more. And it's uh, we, ha- we all have this thing, right, where you check something all the time. There's this particular thing that whenever you need to do it, you just Google it. Sure. <laughs> I have at least two or three of those. But the thing about reading, uh, and if you just get out of the way and read the, like, the whole documentation, there's a higher chance that it sticks to your brain. Yeah, it's a little bit like a good analogy for me. It's um, we live in this information age, right? And our our access feeds, or however you read the news, you're going to get bombarded by tutorials all the time. Yeah, but if you take some of time and and read like a technical book on a subject, I think your brain is more likely to capture <laughs> something that you read in a more calm way, and that's a little bit my concept with reading is better than googling, like. Uh, you might Google a lot of things all the time, but if you take a moment to read, especially uh, docs on certain libraries that you're using, uh, you get you might get something to stick more often. Yeah, and, and that was kind of the concept. Yeah, I think there's a lot to kind of drill into there. Like uh, yeah. your your concept there of initially like you're in the heat of the moment, you are programming, you know, potentially there's a deadline, what have you. You need an answer now. Yeah, and you're not so interested in maybe the context around it, whereas the idea of going to documentation, especially for beginners, can be hard because it can look really foreign to them. Yeah, to yeah. see all the other stuff around it, and it is a skill that needs to be developed. And I feel like you get better at it as you do it, but also if you're <laughs> number one, it's really good to be fascinated in these things and then kind of to drill in. And it can be extremely rewarding to get past that initial hump of like, okay, this stuff looks really kind of strange. But that's what other engineers do is that they're coming from one language to another. They almost immediately go to the docs and look at how an API functions. And one of the examples you had in your talk was about pandas. And you showed a screenshot of in your slides of the pandas data frame drop na oh yeah that one has given me some troubles <laughs> yeah yeah and i think it gives other people troubles because inside of pandas if you don't 
really look at it and look at kind of how the function is defined and it shows, you know, positional arguments and default arguments and you don't really know like what's in there exactly by default you know exactly. and what's being That's filled in automatically the, the defaults right and and we can't forget that not all documentations are created equal right i'm ever so impressed with some of these projects documentation which is a work of art really but not all docs are are are, are created equal and <laughs> yeah sure documentation writing is a big subject right but like you're saying especially in my area where i'm a little bit more focused on data science and machine learning there's a lot of default behaviors. Yeah, sure. Uh, and so there's a lot of decisions made by other people of how your code should write. <laughs> yeah, before you. And of course, if you have a deadline, who am I to tell you? Like, you have to read the docs. Of course, like, go and do. But if you take the time to read the docs, you'll get surely a little bit more understanding of what the power that you are being given can do. Yeah. A good example of this is Scikit. Okay. You're, are you familiar with Psychic? Uh, yeah, I've done okay. some stuff, and I've I've had a Jody Birchall on a couple times now, okay. um, talking about that, that sort of stuff, and she focuses much more on it, okay. uh, than I do currently. But that's been a fun area for me to pick somebody's brain on it. Yeah, but for machine learning, they have incredible documentation. I think Psychic for me is one of kind of one of those classic machine learning libraries, which also has. Uh, amazing core set of contributors and a lot of time, right? But they always have the function definition, the parameter descriptions, the examples of how to use it, the methods available to that function. Like it has everything always in such consistency yeah. that I think also there's a big advantage. And the more maybe uh, time you have uh, programming, the more you're going to gravitate towards well-maintained documentations because you can really it's easier to operate and easier to work with at the end of the day. And the standard library is one of the best examples of that. Like, Yeah, I was going to say that. I think the standard library docs have also evolved super well over time, right? Yeah. And so they're also a super good resource, for sure. Yeah, I mean, you think of the age of those docs and exactly. how many revisions they've been over. <laughs> it's not easy, and, right? But, but it is kind of this, you know, Rosetta Stone for you to start understanding what's going on and the design of the language itself and how things can be laid out. And I, I, I would agree that there's probably unique writing styles depending on the area of Python that you're focusing on. You know, I would I would say that, mm-hmm. you know, somebody designing web APIs is going to have a certain kind of design and feel and automatic, you know, stuff happening versus, like you said, for data science, there may be a particular bent in ways that make sense to do these things automatically unless you you know look for them so yeah what are your some of your favorite docs oh i have so many I, like i said psychic for me is like uh, and pan- pandas are great docs all of when you know what i mean what i mean chris is that i think like a good user guide yeah of course docs are important and api doc- documentation but a good user guide goes so far away in really explaining how you're supposed to use something so i think psychic really steps out of uh, as one of those good let me think of uh, like scikit is is a big one scikit is a, is an enormous one and then a lot of the machine learning libraries but one that also stands out that is not machine learning focused is fast api oh, yeah i mean it's wow. pretty well done yeah. like and also <laughs> uh pydantic like it seems that whenever i want something i just get into the docs instantly and they're also so well explained i think and it's the extra mile that they go, right? I think FastAPI goes in the extra mile to explain to you what the async keyword means if you're doing async. And so it's that kind of, or the user guide, is those extra steps that really step out and stand out in, a, in, in documentation. Those are just some. Yeah. yeah. 
some of the early conversations I had on the show, this kind of came up and people were asking, you know, what were, I think that we did them as like early kind of discussion ideas, but like what were good resources that people can go and just, you know, read either the, the repository of code, which I always thought was kind of interesting actually looking at the code, say in GitHub and how it's written and deciphering it directly. But it'll hopefully <laughs> the documentation itself can, can be that easier way of getting into that. But that's also another way, you know, but, and that's, you know, you, those are skills you're going to develop as you go. And so that's great to talk about that. For sure. For sure. I think whenever you click C source code in every documentation you are, uh, a lot of times you're going to be like, okay, what the hell am I looking at? But <laughs> yeah. uh, as your experience grows, you really want to understand what's happening underneath the hood, right? Yeah, totally. And, uh, so, I mean, this is for no way I'm saying one is better than the other. It's me saying that there's a lot of advantages in, in really understanding the power that you are giving with the external dependency that you're adopting. And so there's a good way of leveraging even more because uh, of knowing how it works. And basically, that's the call. So this is kind of a tangent that is something that, you know, is sort of topical right now, this idea of the idea of, you know, reading documentations a whole other level versus Googling. What are your thoughts on these, you know, AI types of tools that are going to potentially give you whole chunks of code, the the things that people maybe are typing in chat GPT or GitHub Copilot? Oh, yeah. That's a good question. I mean, these technologies are absolutely incredible. Yeah, it could be a whole other episode, I'm sure. <laughs> I, I'm so happy that they are out there, like, finally. Um, my approach is that I don't really, even though I'm, <laughs> I like to see myself as young, I don't really trust the hype. I, I, I tend sure. to prefer to focus on the use cases at hand. Uh, so I, for example, I tried GPT for some code examples, chat GPT for some code examples. Okay. Uh, for example, like, uh, hey, here's this function in Ruby, write this function in Python. Most of the times I've seen it wrote or some unnecessary things that were not needed in the function, or it invented some API <laughs> API methods that don't, don't really exist on that library. Uh, okay. And so I think there's a, you need to take it as a grain of salt, right? Especially sure. things like chat GPT. But on the other hand, Copilot for me was uh, the opposite experience. Oh, it was more successful. So I have this, I, I have this idea that uh, these systems are designed for a human in the loop. That's how kind of ChatGPT uh, on the back was was kind of con conceived. It talks to you, but um, it also has some humans telling. He had some humans in doing training to tell ChatGPT what it should answer. Yeah. But Copilot, for example, it's such more of a specific use case, and you're only going to accept. You, you can you have the power to accept the suggestion or not right autocomplete style it's kind of autocomplete on steroids yeah but it still needs your involvement so it still needs your approval so I actually used started using copilot uh, about a month ago okay and if, I mean just for a month using it for me it's definitely worth the price because it's it's like autocomplete it will never do anything without my command so we'll not get out of control. But the context that it gets from around my code is is really useful. So I think those are very two, two very different tools. You know what I mean? Oh, yeah, interesting. Yeah, I think that's going to be a later conversation. I'm thinking about bringing some people on to, to talk about it a little bit more. And and I I agree that they kind of go in slightly different directions. And mm. I haven't <laughs> every like kind of weird little free time moment I've had where I'm like, oh, let me play with Chat GPT. They're like, nope, 
Sorry, can't get on right now. <laughs> so I haven't had much experience. Yeah, I've developed a product with them. So I developed a product that actually uh, covers okay. the OpenAI API. And yeah, uh, that's, that's, oh, you got been, a little more access. <laughs> yeah, it's been, a, it's been a struggle. Let me tell you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, so your next point that you had after the you know reading mm-hmm. is uh, keeping things stupid simple. <laughs> yeah. The kiss, uh, keep yeah. it simple, stupid or whatever. <laughs> In your case, yeah, stupid, exactly. simple. <laughs> yeah, for me, it's a little bit about in the blog post is it's to first make it work. Yeah. Then make it pretty. Yeah, those are kind of related to, aren't they? Exactly, exactly. Those are, those exactly. And so let me, I, I think we'd, I hate writing code that doesn't get run. <laughs> and so yeah. I remember once I was uh, interning in Boston and my manager, I was working in kind of this kind of this algorithm that scanned everything uh, around us and allowed us to sell things quickly and stuff like that. And and I remember telling him all of these cool things, but he tell and thinking about all of the different edge cases, but he was like, right, Dwight, that's fine, but does it work yet? And I was like, no, then yeah, then first make it work. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah. for me, it's a little bit about keeping the pragmatism in the things that you do, which is, it might be counterintuitive for the more senior engineers. It's because senior engineers are traumatized by their past experience. So they always try to anticipate whatever is possible, right? Yeah. But even if you have, my point is that even if you try to catch all the exceptions in your code, even if you have 100% code coverage on your tests, do users care about do <laughs> uh, users care that much about uh, 100% code coverage? No, uh, just want it to work. <laughs> of course, right? But and, and, or, or managers, right? But if the app breaks down, they they care then, right? So yeah, yeah. Uh, for me, it's this concept of being trying to be pragmatic about the code that you will write or the project that you will do. And I think one thing that I've seen in the staff engineers that I that I that I work with is that they know what code not to write. That's what a super experienced engineer is, right? They know the use cases that we will not solve because you will not cover all of them. There will be exceptions, there will be bugs, there will be errors. So get comfortable and and just do the things that really bring value. That's my point. Yeah, I feel like we've been kind of moving in that direction in some of the tutorials that we do Real Python. We've been doing these mm. sort of step-by-step projects. And the one I just recently covered was uh, about kind of creating a Wordle clone, that word game. Mm-hmm. And he initially got it up on its feet and made it run and said, okay, this is like core code of like functionally what it's going to do. Now let's turn it into a program and refactor it and and do some of the stuff that you were talking about in your talk, the idea of like, well, it's really hard to build on this code because it really just does one thing. Mm-hmm. But if we were to rip it apart and think about functionally what these different you know sections would do and call this sort of stuff and do repeatable types of code things, you can kind of start to use some of those techniques. And I guess that's where kind of maybe the book that you were talking about, uh, Dane Hillard's book, kind yeah. of comes in a little bit. Yeah, exactly. For, the point is is exactly the point that you're saying is that a lot of times, especially in the companies I work with, which I, I, I really like to work with like smaller startups or a little bit more like things that move a bit faster, it's really hard to anticipate what's going to stick. Yeah. And so if you start thinking about all of the each edge cases really early, which is something that a lot of engineers do, 
you'll write a lot of boilerplate. I'm a little bit <laughs> afraid of using this word, but you'll write a lot of conceptual things <laughs> that might change uh, next week yeah. uh, when someone has a different idea. And so uh, you shouldn't be afraid of writing something that works, like that make make it work, right? And then if the use case is proven, then there you go and, and, and refactor. I actually done it in a, in a recent work of mine where I built a CLI and then next week the client wanted an API and there I was having to refactor things, but at least the use case is proven, right? And, and that's right. kind of the main points. Yeah, and a lot of the core you know, function code is there and you just can you know, modify what's there, which exactly. is great. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Yeah, one of the key things that he talks about in the book, and I had him on the show to dive deeper into it, and you know, I, I think I kind of probed him a lot on this. It's like, okay, well, what is extensible code? What does that mm. mean? And maybe you can give me your your take on it. <laughs> oh, it's one of my favorite concepts from that book. Such a well written book, honestly. Yeah, but um, yeah, uh, for, it's it's extensible code is about adding a new behavior to your code does not change existing behavior and he gives a good example in, in, in the book about web browsers right where you have this concept of extensions yeah where they are web browsers are are also made to being able to like download extensions and use those extensions on the browser and the idea is is similar and so the idea is that whenever you have to change something on your code you don't have to shotgun your entire code base. Right. You don't have to go and change every single thing about uh, your code base. We're doing the big rewrite. <laughs> exactly, exactly. <laughs> I, I don't, I, of course, it's normal to do big rewrites when you're starting the project, right? There's a lot of uncertainty. Sure. But no, then the, the, your code base will tend to kind of stabilize a bit and you'll really hit that sweet spot where adding some new functionality is super easy with the way you've thought of your code base. And this is an art. Yeah, you're never going back to uh, the, the fact of that, you know, first make it work. Okay, first make it not work again. That's yeah. not great. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly, exactly. And I mean, I think this is something that comes with a lot of experience, right? Of anticipating what might go wrong or what the future needs might be. And I still get this wrong all the time. It's that's uh, like thin balance between, yeah, making things work and, and then making things pretty and functional, right? But I had use case this week even where we had an API that uh, just supported uh, single inference and needed to support batch inference. And the change for that support was two lines of code. And I was like, wow, this is really what uh, Daniel, Dan, Dan Hillard meant, right? Like changing two lines of code and there it is, more functionality. Yeah, so cool. Yeah, yeah, it was, that was a good feeling, but you know, it's not like I do that every day, but I try. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. This week, I want to shine a spotlight on another RealPython video course. It's about building a project using a package we mentioned during this week's episode. It's titled Building a URL Shortener with Fast API in Python. And it's based on a RealPython step-by-step -step tutorial by Philip Xeni. In the video course, Darren Jones shows you how to create a REST API with Fast API, how to run a development web server using Uvicorn, and model a SQLite database investigate the auto-generated API documentation, learn how to interact with the database with CRUD actions, and finally, optimize your app by refactoring your code. This URL shortener project is intended for intermediate Python developers who want to try out FastAPI 
and learn about API design, CRUD, and interaction with a database. If you need some help with some of the additional suggested requirements, RealPython has you covered there as well with video courses and tutorials. RealPython video courses are broken into easily consumable sections and where needed, include code examples for the techniques shown. All lessons have a transcript, including closed captions. Check out the video course. You can find a link in the show notes or you can find it using the enhanced search tool on realpython.com. And then you, you kind of, you know, going back into some of these core concepts of, you know, software engineering, mm. which again, you, you said you didn't really have the background. That's what was kind of nice about that exactly. book is that the sort of shift of like, okay, now you're going to work in a workplace mm. and testing is a big part of that too. Yeah. Uh, for me, like you said, I don't have the formal computer science background. I have a big passion for computer science uh, compared to most machine learning engineers out there. Uh, I do believe uh, one of the big secrets of machine learning is is to be a good software engineer. Yeah, A lot of these concepts of testing, a lot of these concepts of unit testing, continuously deploying, really knowing the software side really gives you a boost on the machine learning side, trust me. But yeah, in this post, I was talking about tests, right? And I, I, I provoke saying in the talk that tests are a mirage. The fact of the matter is a lot of projects that I've seen in the wild don't even have tests. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, there's this big debate surrounding tests, right? <laughs> like there's this big debate of should you write tests or shouldn't you write tests? I mean, users don't see tests, right? But if something goes down, <laughs> they'll notice it. And I have, I try to have this, this, this approach to testing, which is tests increase my confidence when I'm shipping. So I, I, I cover to, I, I test to kind of cover my own, you know, like to kind of look after myself. If I have a particularly complex function or a particular critical piece of code, I don't trust myself that much. And so writing a good test for it minimizes the chance of bugs in critical parts of my code. They don't eliminate, tests don't eliminate bugs, but they might minimize the chance of them. And so I try to have kind of a pragmatic balance on, on testing, but yeah, it's, it's a little bit about that. That's was kind of my point. Yeah. I feel like uh, data science it ends up very often, you know, just as a generalization and yeah. based on a handful of people that I've worked with mm -hmm. and other projects that I've seen is that it often is what I might, I might self-define as like <laughs> self-work like mm. work for me or for maybe my my small team yeah and where it gets much more interesting as far as tesco and maybe much more of like you know re requirement wise is something that's more shared work mm. you know work that you're putting out into the world that other uh you know in your case you're mentioning clients often or, yeah. or, or customers mm -hmm. are going to touch this thing <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> and they're gonna you know it's like uh you know, making it, uh, you know, I worked at this school for recording engineers and the technician guy mm -hmm. at the school kept saying always, I can make things student resistance. I can't make them student proof. <laughs> um, you know, it's like, it's going, you know, things are going to happen to this equipment. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that, that's exactly my point. And especially, so data scientists normally work on smaller teams, right? That's the way it is. 
Really common, yeah. I, I do believe that the whole works on my machine, but yeah, we're not going to put your machine uh, in production. So right. there's this content, right? Jupyter notebooks, are they made for production or not? There's attempts for making it work like NBDev and, and things like that. There's attempts of saying just like, I, if you're going to write production code, then you should write production code. That's something that's been done in software for years and you should adopt those metrics. So I don't know about that whole debate, but... I, I do think that tests, if you're especially when you're collaborating, so I agree with you, increase like if you're building on top of a feature, you want to make sure you don't destroy the work that's already there as well. Right. So for collaborating, I think those sets are good. Of course, in machine learning, it's it's rare that things are that deterministic. But one of my other talks, one thing I argue is that if you're classifying sentiments, you're doing a movie classifier, right? Yeah, sure. This was a horrible movie like the sentence, this was a horrible movie, should always be classified as negative sentiment, right? Right. Whatever version of your model is currently in production, that, uh, that case is always going to be the case. <laughs> and also, if someone sends you a number, you should not classify a sentiment on just a number. They need to give you a string with at least X characters. And so mm. making sure you don't classify on a number is also something you can guarantee with tests. So there's a, a big use case for tests even in machine learning even though it's not a super deterministic field. And so I tend to agree more with the software side that tests have a place in machine learning. And so I, I tend to implement them in almost all projects I have. Well, it definitely makes sense. And it kind of goes back to the, your idea of you know, first making it work. It's like, if you're going to make changes to it, or in the case of data science, it's like, I'm now going to throw this very different set of data at mm -hmm. this thing. Mm -hmm. Does it test the same way? Like, does it, yeah. you know, does it go through the machine in the same way? So I, I can definitely see it. And I just think it's, culturally hard. Yeah, I agree. That's exactly the point. <laughs> for non-computer science people to like embrace this. Or even it becomes like, not even computer science, what was the term? Like it's much more DevOps kind of land or, you know, sort of like structural sort of stuff that you're, not that you're going to be like the cop in this situation and, you know, mm -hmm. try to police people running tests, but it, it kind of feels like that sometimes. And like, you got to show the benefits. Yeah, we call it MLOps in our side, but uh, between us, uh, let's hope nothing is, no one is hearing this too much. No, I'm kidding. But for <laughs> me, it's, it's, it's kind of the same. Uh, I leverage a lot of DevOps practices in my machine learning work. Continuous integration, making sure something passes the test before reaching the repository, enforcing code styles uh, on CI. A lot of these concepts from DevOps is something I, I use often uh, in my yeah. projects. They're great. I can imagine, yeah. Yeah, of course. So to get to the last point, which is I'm a huge fan of, and obviously that's, I've said it a million times on the show, like that this is my jam, but uh, learning continuously. Oh, yeah. Uh, for me, uh, that's a, a point I make uh, on the talk. And, and for me, one of my favorites. I also come from a family where my dad's a, a doctor. So Yeah, I love those pictures and the slides. Those are great. <laughs> my dad's a doctor. My grandpa is a PhD in uh, geology. My grandma is also a PhD in geology. And so I, I grew up in this setting where my dad uh, con continuously studied uh, and um I think it's, and also my grandpa continuously said, everyone studies. Uh, and I think it's a way of not only keeping, like keeping your skills sharp and making sure you're 
you know what are the latest trends yeah. and you know how to do things. And that's especially important in fields like software, right? <laughs> but also a way of questioning the way you've done things before. So whenever you are learning and reading about a certain topic, you're, you're thinking about something you did in the past and evaluating if that was done well or how could you've done it better. And so for me, I always try to continuously learn, especially in my field, because yes, I'm very focused on machine learning, but Python is my tool for all intents and purposes. And so I, I need to be a master uh, of my tool or my craft. And so for me to be a master of my craft, I need to dedicate time to ensure that I'm up to date on how my craft is being used. And so there's a different ways of doing things, but I think it all starts with you making time to learn. <laughs> I think uh, we are bombarded with information everywhere, but if you make time to learn, you'll definitely see the benefits compounding throughout the years. Yeah, definitely. What are some of the resources that, I guess we could talk about like Python-wise, and then we could talk about mm -hmm. uh, ML specifically. What are some resources that you use and where do you invest that time to keep learning? I do uh, a lot, maybe a bit too much. <laughs> so <laughs> sure. for the first thing I suggest it was, is first to calm down. Everyone has a lot of FOMO. Oh, yeah. Uh, and second, make time to learn, right? So I, I try to stay up late with the news, first of all but not too much. So I have kind of RSS feeds where I get my favorite blogs. One of them is Real Python's newsletter, uh, which is sure. great. And I have a couple of other newsletters as well that I, uh, I try to keep up. And of course, podcasts, this podcast, a couple of other Python podcasts. Uh, is also a great way to stay in touch. Yeah, And I read uh, a lot, uh, perhaps a bit too much, uh, but I always try to read I like I love reading technical books, and so are you a physical book or a, a so, PDF or Kindle? So or? Kindle for all the non-technical stuff, ah. but if it's it's if it's technical, machine learning related, you like the physical Python related. I want the physical book. I want those ones. I I'm not I'm not able like I don't want to put them in a in a file. I want to have them physically. Those ones I don't mind carrying around. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. I feel like they. I'm the same way, though that's kind of a bit of a battle. Mm. I've moved multiple times <laughs> recently. And so it's like trying to decide if I'm going to do the bookshelf of, again of stuff. Um, I definitely like the physical thing, mm. even though it's sort of stuck in time, you know, as far as technology moving forward. Yeah. But I like adding notes to it. I like, you know, highlighting things and, and kind of being very physical with the book. And, you know, the idea of taking it with you and, cutting off all the other distractions <laughs> potentially exactly you know exactly i agree and you know for the kindle thing i actually did um most of my non-fiction books are, are read on the kindle okay and i i tend to highlight even some technical books on the kindle i tend to highlight the highlight okay. them on the use kindle. the note features and stuff i just yeah. highlight the, the the little thing the snippet i'm interested in okay and i used python to then uh, like uh, parse that clippings.txt file and so I actually have all of the highlights of all of the books that I've written in my Kindle in a repository, <laughs> all of them organized by book and all of the highlights of all of the books that I, I read on the Kindle. Right, we can search through them. <laughs> and then um, not only that, that I thought, okay, this is cool. You have them on a repo, but I actually would like to be reminded of them. And so oh, I okay. took my kind of fast API <laughs> uh, Flask skills and I actually built a newsletter system 
that every Friday sends me something that I highlighted on my Kindle oh, okay. in the past. That's really cool. Yeah, and I, I, it's the website is Kindle hyphen highlights dot email kindle highlights dot email and uh, yeah it's anyone can sign up for it I actually made it available for everyone all right well we'll get that link from you oh, yeah. that sounds cool yeah, yeah. it's a neat idea for a project too because it, again keeping it's kind of like that you keep you know googling or stack overflowing the same information it's like exactly yeah, this might be a way to yeah like every <laughs> friday i get like in the morning before starting work i get a quote that i've highlighted in a book that i've read and yeah a lot of times that's the thing you need to take a step back from your week and yeah. understand where you want to go, right? Yeah, yeah. Or I want to go back and look at that again. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so that's great. What do you use for the RSS reading? Is there a particular tool you like? Reader from Mac, and on the back that's Feedly, basically. And Reader is the one with the is it two E's? A uh, Reader is the one with two E's, right? So the account is a Feedly account okay. where I kind of gather all the things that I like, yeah, and Feedly, then yeah. the Reader is basically a client for the RSS. So it allows you when, okay. and but a tip about RSS, you'll get the a lot of people just start adding stuff and stuff to your RSS feed. And oh, it's way easy to overwhelm yourself. Exactly, so easy to overwhelm yourself. Like you'll notice that some of these sites write hundreds of articles every day <laughs> and, yeah. and you want to read your news in the morning right so i would say be extremely skeptical of adding stuff to your rss feeds and clean them up regularly i always try to like keep them into like i don't know 60 articles daily that i can go through and see what i like so every morning i just go through it see what i like and, and then yeah, yeah. It from there. so it's not a chore it's more of a it, yeah exactly a it's joy. you're looking forward to <laughs> right exactly yeah. exactly otherwise like you know 300 articles every day that you have to skim through i'm like no thanks yeah yeah we as programmers sometimes feel like we must do this and go through all of them and com yeah it's completion <laughs> yeah then it's like you're not learning yeah. yeah it's like it's like googling right you're not uh, you're not nothing is sticking to your mind yeah yeah are there some resources specifically for ml oh yeah like uh, machine learning is also it's yeah a big part of yeah what i do basically so uh all of the conferences i recently attended one called normconf okay and the idea is that we have this kind of imposter syndrome where everyone is doing crazy things and gpt right but there's something called normconf which is basically let's discuss the machine learning problems that we really face day to day and hey sometimes you're debating with a five gigabyte json file and you don't know how to parse it correctly and so it was a bunch of talks about like normal everyday machine learning problems that someone faces. And so, yeah, like NormConf was, was a great conference. Some people that I follow in the field is, I think not the people that are so like hypey about the field, but like people like Vicky Boykis, Vincent Wormerdam, uh, Sebastian Rachka, like people that actually do it well and calmly. Yeah, And I, I follow the, their blogs and they're great and follow them. Books like Machine Learning Design Patterns is a great book. Designing ML Systems is a couple of books I read recently. Podcasts, Practical AI by the Changelog Network. This Week in Machine Learning is also a great pod. Uh, yeah. What was the one that you were on? The one it was MLOps. Basically, it's called okay. MLOps by Neptune AI. It's also a super good podcast so it's you you'll you'll f for sure find stuff out there but i think also a good point is get involved in the community like i mean there's nothing yeah, better yeah, than, like than being in a sea of nerds <laughs> so go to conferences get involved yeah you're reminding me of something that i, I had heard at uh, pycon last year how there was a 
and I didn't follow up on it. Mm. I, I want to again, but it was like kind of a similar thing where you're talking about like a, an ML problem being presented and and them talking through like you know, potential solutions. This one was like a, a particular like data set drops, mm. <laughs> and then people have to kind of think about that data set and you know mm-hmm. what's in it and how to organize it, how mm-hmm. to clean it, whatever. And, and I thought it was kind of interesting weekly sort of data set drop. I'll have to look it up. Yeah, like a weekly data science kind of challenge. Yeah, 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 but it's it's a little different than the website, like Kaggle. Yeah, like Kaggle. It was yeah. some, it was some uh, a different organization that was kind of doing it as a way to kind of talk about you know you know working through data mm, and mm, 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 uh, that kind of stuff. Yeah, there's so, so many re- good researchers out there, really. But, yeah, but uh, keep growing all the time. Yeah, exactly, but f- ways to stay on top of yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. There's there's no ways to stay on top of it. And I mean, coming back to your question of like learning continuously, right? Yeah, the best way of learning for me is to build. Honestly, yeah, yeah. If you if you build a side project you're passionate about, and the cool thing about Python is that you could basically do a project on anything you want, because there's a way of applying Python to most areas in the world. Yeah, and so building something uh, normally for for me is the best way to learn. Like just recently, I was doing a data analysis of my Spotify playlist to figure out why has Spotify been recommending some things to me or really understanding, <laughs> like trying to build a recommendation. Like in a bad way or a good way? I mean, in an okay way. I know, like, I mean, I actually was just plotting the popularity of songs I've been adding to. I have a single playlist so I can plot the popularity, the average popularity of songs over the years. And I've noticed that as years go by, the popularity increases every year. Yeah. And it's not that I like very popular music. I never did. So I don't know if someone's recommending to me more popular stuff. I don't know what's yeah. happening, but uh, yeah, like I was. Yeah, I feel like they've changed it a little bit. I, I feel like the things they suggest to me are have changed over the last two years. I'm sure they they insert here and there some things, you know, for yeah. <laughs> for more like. But yeah. yeah, I feel the algorithms modify. Yeah, yeah. Oh yeah, that's for sure. Yeah. I mean, even in the random, right? I think people were complaining in the random shuffling mode of Spotify that they were listening to the same artist twice, and then so the random the shuffling aspect of Spotify, the shuffling button is actually not completely random. It's a random with like, let's ensure that you don't listen to the same artist twice, kind of random. You know what I mean? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. Yeah, totally. All right. So Duarte, I have these questions every week and the first one is what's something that you're excited about that's happening in the world of Python? Could be an event, book, package, editor, what have you. So I'm excited about a lot of things. I'm sorry. <laughs> but uh, first of all, it's, it's conference season coming up. I, I'm a big fan of conferences. So PyCon Italy, uh, PyCon and PyData Berlin. That's a couple of them I'm super excited to go uh, and to see uh, what's going on and, and get involved. The, the, the other thing is, is I'm, have you read of, heard about Ruff? The like new linter, so it's it's kind of a new linter. Oh, uh, maybe I have. Is it, it's a Rust based? Yeah, exactly. Linter? So it's okay. something that the, I think it's kind of not a replacement. I'm not sure if it is a replacement. I don't want to put words in in the maintainer's mouth, but uh, it's basically a, a super fast linter for your Python projects. Yeah, and uh, I've been super excited to. I've been using it, and I've been getting great results. And this whole Rust meets Python duo it's been really exciting to see it grow right i mean i also i've dwelled in rust i think it has a lot of good things and it it's a good companion to python so i'm I'm super excited to see how that whole thing develops does your c plus plus help at all <laughs> uh, actually i had forgot about mo- forgotten about most of my c plus plus but i tried to do a little bit of advent of code last year 
Do you know what Adventive Code is? Yeah, yeah, we talk about it. That's yeah, really so, very cool. Okay, you talked about it. So yeah. I tried to do Adventive Code last year in Rust, and actually I was super well surprised with the language. Nice. That's a good way to practice it. Oh, yeah, it's the best. Yeah. All right. So uh, what's something you want to learn next? This, again, doesn't need to be programming specific. Uh, yeah, but I told you, it's so boring. So I'm actually reading a book called uh, Efficient Python. Okay. I'm falling in love with that book, honestly. It basically tells you... Who's it by? Uh, I do, uh, it's by Brett. It's Brett Slatkin. Brett Slatkin. I think he's... A, oh, yeah. He was on the show very, really? very early. Okay, on. yeah. He's yeah, such yeah. an amazing He's like book. a third guest. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Such an amazing book. Like, I've just... I've been super excited to... You know, it's great when... You have, I'm sure you've had... I'm not sure if you had this feeling, but you let me know. But when you go to bed, you read something, or you read something on a day, and then next day at work, you're like, oh, yeah, this is a... I could already use that right away. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it's such so applied that it's incredible. Yeah. Yeah. We talked about the book. It's an effective Python though, I think, right? Uh, yes. Yeah, yeah. You're completely right. I just hammered the name. Yes. Yes. That's right. Exactly. Clarify. Effective Python. Yeah. No, no, it's okay. That's <laughs> right. I think it threw me for a loop there. Yeah. It was really fun talking to him about it because it was his second edition of it. Mm. And he did some really interesting stuff, kind of updating it mm. for Python three. And and then it, he, we talked about it being a series based about like other effective books okay. and and kind of writing in mm. that style. And there's like a very specific sort of call and response kind of technique that happens in it. And it's a neat book. Yeah, it's great. Yeah, yeah. He's, he basically has a bunch of items of of different areas of Python that you can improve in certain ways. And uh, yeah, it's very practical. It's so practical. You know. But you know, I'm such a nerd that I enjoy his books, <laughs> even when I'm like uh, going somewhere. I, I mean, uh, for me, it's it's been a great book. So I'm excited to learn about that. And of course, in the field of machine learning, there's a lot of areas that I'm continuously learning about uh, that I'm also excited to continue. Oh, awesome. So um, how can people follow what you do online? What's the, what's the best way? <laughs> yeah, I think uh, I think the best way is my website. So that's duarteocarmo.com. Uh, I think we'll put a link in the in the show notes. But uh, yeah, and then yeah. Twitter and LinkedIn are, are, are okay as well. But all of those links are in my website. So that's the easiest way. Yeah, and then catch up on your blog there and what you're up to as far as conferences and stuff. Exactly, exactly. Well, Duart, thanks so much for coming on the show. It's been fantastic to talk to you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Christopher. It was an incredible talk. Really had a lot of fun. And don't forget, easy to start and scale. Companies like IBM, Cisco, and Red Hat all rely heavily on InfluxDB. Check out why they chose InfluxDB. Get started for free today at InfluxData.com. I want to thank Duart, Oliveira, y Carmo for coming on the show this week. And I want to thank you for listening to The Real Python Podcast. Make sure that you click that follow button in your podcast player. And if you see a subscribe button somewhere, remember that The Real Python Podcast is free. If you like the show, please leave us a review. You can find show notes with links to all the topics we spoke about inside your podcast player or at realpython.com slash podcast. And while you're there, you can leave us a question or a topic idea. I've been your host, Christopher Paley, and I look forward to talking to you soon.